Let's bow together in prayer. Let's get to God's word. We rejoice that you are our Lord. We are so grateful. Now, Father, as we come to your book, may our hearts be opened to what you want to say to us. We need to hear from you. And yet we have the responsibility of having hearts that are open and tender, not hard and our way. Lord, help us to hear you today. Thank you for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. We're studying through the Gospel of Mark. We're up to chapter 11. Last week we were looking at the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, terribly misunderstood by not only the crowds, but also Jesus' own disciples. They're thinking about Jesus being the king to a new empire that will conquer Rome, and this is going to be great. But Jesus comes bringing a kingdom not yet of this world, a different kingdom. And we're into the last week of Christ now in these chapters, and this is a time in which Jesus pulls out all the stops, and yes, he works on the religious leaders and they become very agitated and they do plot his death. It's all been calculated now for three years of public ministry and it's climaxing in this last week. We come today after the um, triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. We come today to a time where he cleanses the temple of sinful activity going on. He also curses a fig tree. These two stories go hand in hand. Very important. I'm reading in Luke chapter, or Mark chapter 11. What book are we studying? Yeah, Mark. Mark chapter 11. I'm starting to read in verse 12. I hope you've got a digital or a hard copy of God's word with you and you can follow along with me. We do have the text on the screen for those that might not have it. By the way, if you want to use the, if you're here in the auditorium, and you want to use the Bible that's under your chair, feel free to do that. And if you don't have a Bible, take it. Enjoy. Really. It's fine. I'm reading Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it it's a den of robbers? The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. 
Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the tree that you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this tree, go and throw yourself into, uh, anyone says to this mountain, go and throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. This is the reading of God's word to us. And now we look at the challenge that it presents, going verse by verse through the passage. In this passage, there are two symbolic acts, a cursing of a fig tree and also the cleansing of the temple area. This is not the easiest of passages, but if you want to understand it, it is absolutely critical to understand these two events go together. Did you notice we start with the cursing of the fig tree, then we have the cleansing of the temple, then we come back to the cursing of the fig tree? Just a little while before this, same kind of thing happened with two closely interwoven stories. Jairus wants prayer for his daughter because she's sick and even dying, and as, he's go as Jesus is going to heal her, a woman with an issue of blood, a disease of blood, encounters Jesus. He handles that, then he goes right back and carries on. And by that point, Jairus' daughter has died and he raises her from the dead. Two stories closely interwoven. These two are also, same pattern, closely interwoven. We start with a fig tree. This is quite a shocking turn of events. People were expecting Jesus to come and, and be victorious over Rome. And instead what he does, he goes into the temple and he casts out the salespeople, the Jewish people. He directly confronts the religious leaders. Wait a minute, I thought he was going to conquer Rome. They didn't expect this. When we look at it, Objectively, we realize this probably wasn't a huge, a major disturbance of any kind. If it was, not far away was the Roman soldier headquarters. And those soldiers would have been there very quickly had this turned into a public riot. Jesus is chasing people out. He's cleansing it. Yes, he's doing his work. He's rebuking them for what they had done. He's turning over tables. But apparently it's not a big enough event for the soldiers to come. But Jesus is not going about conquering Rome. He's cleansing a temple. Jesus is not attacking Romans. He's attacking religious leaders. What's going on here? We begin with a fig tree. Verses 12, 13, and 14. The next day as they're leaving Bethany... They're heading into Jerusalem. They're at Bethany, probably at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. He's got an open invitation to join them anytime, and Jesus knows why he's going to Jerusalem. This is the last week of his life. He's staying just a short distance outside of Jerusalem in Bethany. The next day, after Palm Sunday, 
people waving Jesus into Jerusalem, dropping their coats in front of him. The next day, Jesus was hungry. We see some of the human side of Jesus. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, what does that mean, a fig tree? It means the tree had lots of leaves. It looked very healthy. He went to find out if it had any fruit. Question, do you think he didn't know it had no fruit? He's Jesus. He knows all. Why does it say he went to find out if any had fruit? And when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Mark knew it wasn't the season for figs. Don't you think Jesus did too? I feel a lesson coming on from Jesus to the disciples. They are down to the last week of Jesus' life. They don't know that yet. Jesus is preparing them to take over when he is gone. Lesson upon lesson is what they've been learning day after day. And this is yet another one being set up for them. We know about the fig tree. It's mentioned about 50 times in the Bible. Often in the Old Testament is referenced as a picture of Israel. In a number of those instances, it is symbolic of the Jewish people. And they are not living as they should for God. And they are pictured as a fig tree that will be judged. Is it not interesting that this fig tree is now judged by Jesus. He could have told you the number of leaves on the tree. He knows there's no figs on that tree. He is setting up an illustration for his disciples. Verse 14 takes us into the fact that he curses the tree. And he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Very strong words. In the Matthew account of this account, Matthew chapter 21, Jesus also uttered the phrase that the tree would never again produce figs. It's a curse of the tree. Now, some people have looked at this passage and just think it is very uncharacteristic of Jesus. In fact, Jesus is criticized by this, even by some scholars, and some people depart from faith over issues like this passage. They think this is a total waste of divine resource. A waste of a miracle. The commentator Barclay thinks this is not worthy of Jesus. Jesus is acting like a spoiled child. He does not get what he wants. I'm hungry and there's no figs. I want figs. I recall a day in which Jesus was tempted by the devil to turn stones into bread and he didn't handle that one when he was hungry. This is not about Jesus being a spoiled brat. This is about a lesson that he is going to teach. He's setting his disciples up for this. Certainly he's hungry. Some people say, why curse a perfectly good tree? It's not in season for figs anyhow. Why not heal the tree? Why not put some figs on the tree miraculously? He chose to go another direction with this miracle. Is it not interesting? This is one of the very few times... A couple of times where you see Jesus doing a miracle that is destructive, not healing. 
There was another instance, a very demonized man terrorizing his community for years. Jesus healed him and allowed the demons that were in him to go into 2,000 pigs who rushed down a slope, jumped in the lake, and were drowned. Interesting in light of the fact that pigs swim well. He left 2,000 dead pigs floating in the water as a testimony. No one in that town could ever say, well, I guess the guy just got over it. Now he's fine. No, there's dead pigs showing you that something in the supernatural realm happened here. Here, Jesus is not killing pigs, but he certainly is sacrificing a tree. He owns pigs. He owns trees. He will use them to make his points when it is time. After all, he is preparing his disciples for the moment that will come in a few days where he will leave them and they will take over the ministry. In this lesson, Jesus is going to draw a parallel between a fig tree that looks good with its leaves, but it has no fruit, and a nation of Israel with a great temple that looks good, but it has nothing to offer spiritually because they're dead. They're not following God's path. Jesus uses the tree to teach this lesson. The lesson becomes clearer the next day after the tree has withered. The temple that Jesus is going to go in in a few moments is barren of spiritual fruit. If you go there because your heart is hungry, you will not be fed. This prophecy of Jesus regarding the temple, the cleansing of the temple is actually even a prophecy about a future day that will come in 40 years. There's such ungodliness among these people. They're not following God's way. Jesus is intimating. He is definitely speaking prophetically here about a day 40 years down the road when the Roman Empire Titus will enter the temple and he will dismantle it. Judgment of God for lack of spiritual fruitfulness. This is all wrapped into the illustration of a tree that Jesus curses. For those of you that are tree huggers, and I'm not speaking facetiously here, don't weep for the tree. Psalm 24.1 says that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, whether it's 2,000 pigs to give a testimony to the freedom of a person's soul from demonic control, or whether it's the sacrifice of a tree. Jesus uses these things to teach spiritual lessons. In fact, he'll die on a tree in just a few days. Another tree. It is certainly within the grace of our Lord to use all these objects for lessons. Before moving on to the cleansing of the temple, I have got to ask the question, if there are religious organizations today, if there are churches today, that if Jesus were to visit us, it would be considered fruitless. You are aware that there's no such thing as a church, a local church that's 2,000 years old. Most churches do well to last 100 or 200 years. 
There's a natural life cycle. Birth, growth, death. The church of Jesus Christ goes on. All of his believers from across the world. But local churches, no guarantee. And perhaps the reason some local churches go out of business is because they have become fruitless. And so they die. The reason for their existence is gone. I wonder which churches Jesus would condemn today. A yielding to the work of God and his kingdom. Not the kingdom we want to build with him as king as we see it, but his kingdom, which transcends all nations. Let's be a part of what he is doing. Let us be fruitful in him. We now come to the cleansing of the temple, which begins in verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, he has now left Bethany on the way in. They've come to the fig tree. He has cursed it. He's now moving into Jerusalem. Jesus enters the temple area and begins driving out those who were buying and selling there. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And he wouldn't allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. This is the second time Jesus has cleansed the temple. At the beginning of his ministry in John chapter 2, he actually fashioned a whip and he used that and he chased the money changers and those in sales out of the temple area. There's no mention of a whip here. This is much later in his ministry. It's a second time. Jesus' view is that the holy temple of God has been desecrated. The inner holy of holies where the presence of God rests at the mercy seat. This whole area has been corrupted. The outer area where these, where these people are selling and so on. And by the way, this is Passover week. So they're probably selling lambs and other sacrifices, helping people get ready for their Passover celebrations. Jesus views this as a, de as a desecration of the temple. We read in history that they were probably charging exorbitant prices, making big money. And probably the religious leaders were getting their cut. Oh, sure, yeah, use the outer court. That's fine. Sell the sheep, you know, big price. Oh, you know, what are you going to give us for rent? Corruption. This is the court of the Gentiles where, where there should be a time of prayer, places of prayer, and sacrifices are prepared here. Instead, it's turned into a bazaar. A center of commerce. Notice that there are three groups here that we have underlined. There are those who are buying and selling. There are money changers. And there are those carrying merchandise through the temple area. He chases all of them out. He chases those out who are buying and selling. These are the ones probably selling the lambs and other things getting ready for the Passover celebrations. Doves are also mentioned for those who maybe can't afford other sacrifices. He chases out the money changers. You have to understand, this was Passover week. Every year at Passover week, males of the Jewish origin paid a tax to the temple. It had to be paid in Jewish currency, the shekel. 
people coming from all over Israel and beyond, Jewish people, to worship and be a part of the Passover. They have to exchange their Roman coins for Jewish shekels. That's why these guys are here. Oh, yeah, of course, there was a surcharge on the exchange. Then there's the supply and demand change. Chain. Jesus also kept people from cutting through the temple with their merchandise. Let's just go to the other side of the city. We'll cut through the temple with all of our stuff. The temple is not your shortcut. Jesus says, stop it. And then to people's surprise, in verse 17, he, as, as he did this, he's teaching them, is it not written that my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, even Gentile nations. Court of the Gentiles, outer areas of the temple where this is happening. But you have made it a den of robbers. If you know your Bible, you know where this comes from. This is an Old Testament quotation. The great Isaiah 56, that's a prediction of Jesus and his sacrifice for us. It's right in there in Isaiah 56, verse 7. The temple being the house of prayer for all nations, but you made it a den of robbers, of thieves. The den of robbers is thieves, or thieves is a place where the thieves, the robbers, go to to do their thing and hide their wares, charging exorbitant fees the whole bit. The religious leaders immediately begin to look for a way to kill him. That's what the text says. But you may, uh, the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and they began looking for a way to kill him. They've already plotted. They've been thinking now they've got to come up with a specific way. And in a few days they will have him on the cross. What they think they want. Jesus is pushing their buttons. The time has come for him to be the sacrifice. And he needs to do that. So he pushes them. He disrupts their temple life. Now, interestingly, the attention turns back to the fig tree, starting in verse 20. Here's the second half of the fig tree story. In the morning, the next day, apparently they went out of town that night back to Bethany, see Mary and Joseph, or Mary and uh, Martha and uh, Lazarus. In the morning, they're traveling back, and they pass the fig tree again. In the morning, as they were going along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Very unusual. Obviously, this is a miracle from the roots up. And Peter remembered, said, Rabbi, look! The fig tree that you cursed, it's withered. And then Jesus goes on to teach more lessons. He's already taught one lesson of disobedience to God and how that brings curse. It's been played out in the cleansing of the temple. Now the second part of the lesson that goes to prayer, and frankly, this might be what some of you are waiting for today because prayer is such a tough ministry. I was thinking about this this morning as I was watching friends coming up here, and I did too. I put a gem in the bowl. For those of you that are new to Calvary or don't know our practice, this is what's called a silent testimony. You can actually speak to the fact that God answered a prayer this week in your life by going up and taking a little gem out of the little bowl and putting it in the big one. The big bowl has over 4,000 gems in it. Every one of those is a story. 
Some of them are small stories of little things God has done. Some are huge in your lives. It's kind of neat. You don't have to say a word. You can just go up there. You don't have to tell the story. You can just put the gem in. But let's face it, there are times we pray and we don't get answers. That's where this passage goes. Starting in verse 20. In the morning they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Peter mentions it right away. And Jesus will now draw another lesson beyond the curse, a lesson regarding faith. Verse 22 Have faith in God, Jesus says to Peter. Oh, yeah, tree is cursed. How did you do that, Jesus? You you cursed a tree and it's all withered the next day. Have faith in God, Jesus answers. I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, what is the mountain we'll talk about in a moment, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. This is a general rule regarding prayer. There are some glitches. Sometimes when we pray and we don't get answers to prayer, we beat ourselves up saying, I didn't have enough faith. But you do realize, don't you, that Jesus healed people in the Gospels that didn't even have faith. Perhaps there's more going on here than your faith. Many Christians beat themselves up. My faith's not big enough. Jesus said, if you, another place, if you have the faith, the grain of the size of a mustard seed, little tiny seed, just that much, not big faith, just little tiny faith. You can say to the mountain, be moved and be cast into the sea. How come your mountains aren't being moved? And some of mine. I put a gem in this morning, answered a prayer. But I will assure you there's plenty more I don't have answers to yet. What is going on here? This principle appears to say, go throw, yourself, uh, go throw that mountain into the sea, and you don't doubt in your heart, but you believe. You believe what he has said will happen. It will be done for him. Well, I believe, but it's not done. Have you ever beaten yourself up saying, maybe I didn't believe enough? Maybe there's other answers here. Actually, there are other answers. The clearest one is demonstrated in the following verses to this, which we'll get to in a minute where he even talks about forgiveness. This principle is a general principle of prayer. It clearly says, when we have a request, we go to God and we take it to Him by faith and we believe that He will solve the issue. And He does. Generally, that is the way that it is meant to happen. But there are exceptions to this. It's not mentioned in this verse. It does talk about a mountain. This mountain, it almost sounds like it's a literal mountain. If so, it's probably probably the Mount of Olives where Jesus and the disciples are. But perhaps, too, this is figurative. There's a lot of figurative stuff going on with the fig tree and clearing of the temple. Maybe this is about the big mountains in your life, believing that God will move them, and you pray. And sometimes they move and sometimes they don't. And it may or may not be your faith issues. 
He does mention other exceptions later on about forgiving or not forgiving. But to this general principle, let's understand God's word does give us some exceptions. And maybe these exceptions will explain to you and me a little bit more about why the things we pray for are not happening. For example, James chapter 4, verse 3 says, When you ask when you're praying and you do not receive, maybe it's because you ask with wrong motives. So that's one exception. If you pray and you want something for you, wrong motivation, not for God and His will and His work, you want it for you, you just may not get it. So if you've locked down to the general principle of prayer, if I ask anything in his name, he'll, he'll just give it to me. So I'm going to ask for a car, not just any car, a really nice one. You do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you might spend what you get on your pleasures. Ring in any bells? One of the exceptions to receiving what you want by faith and prayer is when you ask with wrong motives. Another exception that I think God's word gives us is from John chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may be glorified to the Father. You may ask for anything in my name and I will do it. Are you asking because you think you're right and this is going to be good, and Jesus might be saying, it's not, I know you think it's good, but it's not for my glory. I know you think it is, but I have something else in mind here. This brings us to the next passage, which is in the next chapter, John 15, verse 7. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, you will ask whatever you wish for, and it will be given to you. What are the ifs? If you remain in him, and he remains in you. You are so caught up with him, you are yielded to him. You're asking in accordance with his will, he will do it. Prayer is not about you changing things here on earth. It's about you being changed. We often think of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Prayer is not your means of getting your will done on earth. It's God's method of you getting his will done on earth. It's praying according to his will. You can't simply rip the verse out of Mark chapter 11, believing whatever you want, and you're going to get it. There are contingencies. And as you keep reading in the word, you learn some of those exceptions, some of those contingencies. Sometimes God answers our prayers with a yes, the gem goes in the bowl. Sometimes it's a no, and sometimes it's a wait. You don't get what you want because you pray it. God's will is important, and your will must be submitted. So it's out here somewhere. You think you know what is best, and you think you know what glorifies God, and so you ask for that in faith, and over time you keep getting no's until eventually your will lines up with his will so that prayer becomes the way in which God makes you more like Jesus and submitted to his will. When you pray, are you fully submitted to the will of the Father? 
Are you learning to align your prayers with God's will? Prayer is meant to change us to align more with what God's will is. There are things I pray for in my life and they are not yet happening. I wonder if it's a wait or I wonder if it's a surrender your will, Dan. There are things we pray for, people that are hurting. We'd love to see their suffering alleviated. And for whatever reason in the will of God, he says, no, or wait. These become moments that are very difficult for us. And if we will stay faithful and trust him and surrender our will, our patience will be developed. Our humility will be developed. And our faith will probably have to grow to keep trusting him when it gets harder and harder to trust him. Do you remember the Apostle Paul? What a great preacher he was. He had the gift of healing. He would go into towns and preaching the gospel and he would heal people. Do you remember 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where, where Paul sought God three times about a physical issue that he had? He called it a thorn in the flesh. And three times God said no. The healer couldn't heal himself. He could heal others. Can you see how that would be frustrating for a preacher? The things I ask God for that he's saying no or wait. It will build humility. It will build patience. These are not easy matters in Christian faith. They're really not. Verse 24, we come back to the key principle again. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. There it is. All so I can ask. No, there are other exceptions in Scripture. And one is about to follow here in verse 25. Now let's cover the exception of forgiveness. And when you stand praying to God and asking for that thing in prayer, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him right then and there, so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. Oh, to not forgive people is sinful. Now, this is not a study, an exhaustive study in forgiveness, but certainly the Scriptures teach we're to forgive one another, and the tougher the incidents are, the more we can excuse it away. Think of your biggest sins in life. Were all the other ones forgiven except that one by God? We are to forgive as he forgives us. This is not an easy aspect of Christianity. You mean I don't let them off the hook? Just leave them in God's hands. You probably can't do what you'd like to do with them anyhow legally, so just turn them over to God. If you don't, this verse implies, it can disable your prayer life. Sometimes our prayers are not answered because we ask with lousy motives. 
Sometimes our prayers are not answered because we think we know what will glorify God, but it's not. And sometimes our prayers are not answered because we want what we want. And God is saying, I'm doing something different. Align your will with mine. Sometimes it's something as simple as forgiveness that short circuits our prayers. Oh, this is hard stuff. It is not easy. But if there is sin in your life, some have said the only prayer that God answers is a repentant prayer. You have to start there. Handling the sin problems, confessing it. And then God will hear the other prayers. Things like this keep us searching our hearts before God. Prayer is one of those things that grows you and makes you more like Jesus. Lord, am I surrendered to your will? So even if I don't get what I think is your will and you do something differently, I'm surrendered. I will say, your will be done on earth here where I am as well as what it is in heaven. All of this from Jesus cursing a tree and chasing rebellious people out of the temple. Yes, in many of our lives, there are periods of rebellion. We don't want it to be that way, but it is that way. We fall away from God for a while, and then we come back and we pray, and he doesn't do it the way we think, and we think he doesn't answer prayer. He answers everybody else's prayer, but not mine. Maybe next week is your week to put the gem in. Maybe it's been a while. Let's be sure, though, that our wills are surrendered. Let's be sure we're aligning with him, that we really are remaining in him, feasting on him and his ways, not our ways. Fully surrendered. And no unconfessed sin. Certainly no forgiveness issues toward a brother or sister who's wronged us, even wronged us terribly. So many prayers go unanswered for these reasons of exception. Prayer is not about you manipulating God. You don't get to use God to make God in your image what you want. The general rule of thumb is if you abide in him, there is no unconfessed sin or forgiveness issues. You are fully surrendered to his will. Ask in accordance with his will. He will do it in his time. He will do it. We needn't be confused about the principle. The issues of life are hard enough when our hearts are broken for our loved ones who are sick. Difficult situations that we know God could fix without snapping his fingers even. And yet, for some reason known only to God, he does not do what we want. Children are not in charge. God is. Perhaps you are here today. And the issue in your life that keeps God from hearing your prayers consistently, answering your prayers consistently, is your sin. You have not yet taken Christ as your Savior from sin. 
if you've been of the mindset to be the best person you can and try to be good enough to get yourself into heaven, you are not doing it God's way. And God's way is to realize good deeds do not open heaven to you. Your evil deeds, your sins will keep you out. I've often used the illustration that if you try to be a good person all your life and you commit one felony, eventually when the police catch you, they're coming knocking at your door. You are going to jail no matter how good a person you have been. You're going to jail. Wrong has to be judged. And God is no different. In fact, he is perfect in his judgment. If there is sin in your life, you will not enter heaven. No matter how good you think you have been. You have to deal with your sin, and that's the good news. God loved you so much, he sent his son Jesus into this world, and he punished Jesus on that cross for your sin and mine. So that when you pray a simple prayer in your own words, God, I know I'm a sinner. I can't erase it. Please forgive me. Based on the work of Jesus on that cross, your sin will be forgiven. God hears that prayer of repentance. And he always answers it, yes. Always. Would you bow your heads with me in this moment as we close this passage today? And If you've not yet made that decision to trust Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, would you do that right now? Would you simply, in your heart and mind, just offer that prayer and say, God, I'm not sure if I did this right before. I don't know if I got it right, but I want to make sure today, forgive me of my sin. I believe Jesus died for me. Just tell him in your words. This is his plan. He knows all about it. Come to him with the little tiny bit of faith you have. And he will answer this prayer. And forgive your sin. Thank you, our Father, for your word. Practicality of it. Thank you for your standards of holiness in cleansing a temple. Thank you. You are a good God. We worship you. We praise you. We thank you for forgiveness. We thank you for answers to prayer in accordance with your will. In Jesus' name, amen.